Welcome to our second quarter market update. I'm Todd Eckler, Chief Marketing Officer of Fiduciary Trust. We hope you're staying healthy and safe during this coronavirus emergency. This is a challenging time in the world as individuals, companies, and countries respond to the health, lifestyle, financial, and other consequences of the novel coronavirus. Since our last market update two weeks ago, the number of COVID-19 cases have expanded and market volatility has continued. To help keep you informed and better prepared, today we're gonna to discuss the current state of the coronavirus, the impact on the markets, and the key considerations for investment portfolios going forward. I'm joined today by Austin Shepard, President and CEO of Fiduciary Trust, and Hans Olsen, our Chief Investment Officer. They'll take us through a discussion of these areas. Over to you, Austin, to kick it off. Thank you, Todd. Before we get started and discuss the investment markets, I want to express my and fiduciary's concern for our clients, our professional colleagues, and our broader communities, all of whom are being directly or indirectly affected by the coronavirus. This is an unprecedented time, both here at home and globally. And while Hans and I will focus on the economic and investment impact this pandemic has on this call, the real priority for us continues to be the well-being of those listening and your families. As such, Fiduciary stands ready, beyond just investments, to assist in any way possible. The human toll of this pandemic, unfortunately, will be significant and lasting, and our society and communities will be different when we come through it. But we will come through it, and for that reason, it's imperative to continue to be active investors, active fiduciaries, and managing portfolios that have been accumulated over generations. And so with that context, let us begin our dialogue with Hans about the recent investment markets. Hans, welcome. Thanks, Austin. Hans, since a major factor driving this market uh, volatility and what's uh, globally going on is the evolution of the coronavirus, where do we currently stand with the spread of the infection? Austin, the, uh, globally, the cases currently stand at just under 1 million. There, we stand uh, roughly at 217,000 in the United States, and globally, deaths are just over 49,000. Importantly, we're starting to see recoveries rise, and they currently stand at about 203,000. With that curve that people have been talking about, the Chinese have hit peak uh, infection rates and it, they've rolled over there. So the, the new infections are falling every day. Whereas in Spain and the United States and the UK, we all have hit, uh, we have all yet to hit uh, the peak of new infections. So we haven't achieved the summit of the, of the curve yet. As the public health authorities have said, we're probably still a couple of weeks away from that. Hans, given the spread of the virus, it's not surprising and, and, and quite appropriate that governments have ordered closures of and stay-at-home uh, strategies across wide swaths of the population. I can't remember what percentage of America today is, is under that, but this is obviously having a material impact upon the economy and this aspect of businesses, restaurants, nonprofits, uh, universities all are, are grappling with our ability to deal with the virus and its economic impact. Given this sort of shutdown of our ability to gather and so forth, 
What scenarios are you hearing from the medical community and the government regarding how long these restrictions will be in place? And what is the market interpreting? That's a good question. That is all very fluid at the moment. Um, Originally, there was hope that we would see a reopening right around now. That was the idea behind the original two-week quarantine. That has been extended to the end of this month, the end of April. There's even talk that this could go into uh, May and possibly longer if there is a second wave of infections. So at this point, it's anyone's guess. The hope is is that the quarantine or the social distancing will start to get lifted in some form at the end of April. And so, you know, we've talked last week about this is really bringing an economy to a a hard stop in a very short amount of time. How do you put parameters about bringing a active economy to such a quick stop, and and what are you what are you looking at? Well, that's hard stop. I think is the operative term a hard stop because essentially we've seen a twenty two trillion dollar economy grind to a halt, a near halt in roughly a fortnight. It's utter. It's been utterly unprecedented in the magnitude and the speed with which this has unfolded. The New York Fed has in light of uh, the pandemic, has attempted to try to get more real-time economic data that to gauge the impact of the cessation of business. And what they're finding, uh, the data that they're putting together, which tends to be pretty tightly uh, correlated to overall GDP, so it ends up being a pretty good model. Uh, With the recent data that's released as of a week ago, that would suggest an economy that falls somewhere on the order of about 4% in the first quarter. Hans, on the unemployment point, over the last two weeks, I think it's correct that about 10 million people have been let go of their job or furloughed. That is an enormous number in in an unbelievably short period of time. How do you put that in context as it relates to our unemployment rate from where we were, what it is, and also, do you view that as a short-term unemployment status, or how do I think about that, whether it's uh, long-term or short-term, or how that plays out? So, to the numbers, you're right, Austin. Over the last two weeks, we've lost roughly 10 million jobs. Um, And if you were to put that in terms of the unemployment rate, it would take us from a 3.5% unemployment rate to roughly some number between eight to 10%. So in other words, we would be going from a 50 year low in unemployment to a number that that was familiar back during the depth of the financial crisis. And and, and relative to the financial crisis of 12 years ago, during, during the very depths of that crisis, the job loss numbered less than 9 million, probably about 8.7 million if memory serves. But it took over a year, well over a year, a year and a half in order to achieve that job loss. We've done that and more in two weeks. So it's a massive, massive uh, drop in employment in, in a record amount of time. And that begs the question, well, how much of it is permanent and how much of it is temporary? We won't know. It, it will all be a function of the survival of businesses on the other side of this that enabled people to return to the jobs uh, that they were furloughed from. 
So I imagine that the unemployment is a, is a factor as people think about growth rates across the broad economy. Because again, I, my sense is you're going to say that first quarter is going to be bad. Second quarter, I don't know. But how do the next couple quarters are people forecasting at, at this point? Well, like everything else, that's kind of fluid at the moment. So the uh, uh, consensus expectations are still in the process of being formed around that. But currently, uh, the expectations for first quarter GDP will be down somewhere on the order of about 5%. The second quarter, it's going to be uh, somewhere on the order of about 17%. And recovery is expected in the second half of the year. Uh, the third quarter, maybe 6.5%. And then finally, the fourth quarter, somewhere between 4 and 5% at this juncture. So a very tough first half and a, and a better second half. And Hans, let's talk through what the what is that predicated on? Because again, a number of people saying, you know, we're going to see a recovery. I think we have different talking heads about recovery in the back end of the year. What needs to happen to force that or to make have high confidence or higher confidence around a, a recovery in the back end of this year? Well, I think we need to achieve the peak infection as uh, as expected. So within the next couple of weeks uh, and on that time frame, the economy would start to reboot sometime in early May. Uh, in some form, we'd start to see a reboot. And with that, earnings would start to, to pick up again uh, shortly thereafter. When you translate all that into sort of the economic piece to the earnings pieces, which is where we see our commercial activity happen, or we can observe that, from that perspective, even though we expect higher economic growth in the second half of the year, from an earnings perspective this year, through the lens of, of large companies, and in this case, the S&P 500, this is going to be a tough year. Earnings are expected to be negative, in some cases materially negative, uh, in every quarter this year. So in the first quarter, earnings are expected to be down somewhere in the order of 5%. Second quarter, down 10%. And the third quarter, somewhere on the order of uh, 1, 1.5%, and then negative again in the fourth quarter to the tune of about 5%. So it, it's going to be, I mean, if, if, as expectations currently stand, a very tough year on the profit side because the, the shock that we're going through right now will echo through to the balance of the year because you simply can't turn on economic activity as quickly as it was shut off. Will that play through different sectors in different ways? And obviously, in the background, we also have this oil issue going on and oil pricing war going on. But how do you view different sectors through the course of the year? We'll focus on the equity markets first. Equity markets, for the balance of the year, especially within certain sectors of the market, if you think about airline companies, uh, oil companies, and the like, they're, they're going to have a much slower reboot, I would expect. Um, the damage being wrought inside of the transportation industry is pretty significant, and they would be likely candidates for a bailout. The, the energy industry has its own unique problems that were in play before the, uh, the breakout of the pandemic. There was uh, essentially a uh, there was fears about a, a slowdown in economic activity. Uh, some of it was caused by the, the breakout of the coronavirus. But then uh, OPEC failed to uh, agree to a deal in Vienna a couple of weeks ago, which precipitated a price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia. 
which which basically cratered oil prices. Oil uh, crude prices are at levels that we haven't seen in almost a generation. So that that's operating on a parallel track. So far this year, Austin, the the returns are are really all over the map. Uh, small cap equities have done the worst. Uh, in the first quarter, they were down almost 31 percent. Emerging markets and commodities and, and international equities were all down somewhere between 23 and 24%. American companies, American large cap U.S. companies, were down almost 21%. Um, the only things that did well uh, during the quarter were cash, government bonds, and you know, intermediate term government bonds and short government bonds, long term government bonds as well as the yield curve fell. So if you if you owned U.S. debt and cash. Those were the things that uh, stood out and did well during the quarter. Could you talk a little bit about the dislocation that's gone on in the fixed income and fixed income bond world over the past couple of weeks and some perspectives on that? Well, you know, we uh, when we were last together, we were talking about uh, some of the dislocation in the dollar funding market. And uh, the dislocations there spread very quickly into the uh, high yield and loan markets. So you, know, you saw uh, investment grade corporate credit, uh, those the yield spreads there uh, widened significantly relative to treasuries, uh, in, in some cases kind of reminiscent of what we saw during the great financial crisis. And then uh, in the high yield markets, similarly, those yield spreads uh, really lifted as well as fears about those companies in the energy patch and companies that were carrying higher amounts of debt also got hit. Those issues got hit very hard. And indeed, uh, Austin, in some cases, we saw panic selling, forced liquidation of funds, which forced those spreads higher. The problems that we saw uh, in the credit complex were also visited upon the municipal bond markets as well. Uh, municipal bonds yields relative to treasuries lifted to levels far in excess of what they were in 2008. So even this sector of the bond market, which is generally thought to be pretty immune from this this type of event, have have been dislocated as well. Hans, uh, my guess is those are concerning factors for a, a market practitioner like yourself. But I guess a positive sign has been that the, the Fed has been active. Um, and and how have you interpreted the Fed's reaction to this? Muscular and fast is is how I would characterize it. If you look at the how they've come at this problem and juxtapose it with what they did back in 2008, what they've done now is much quicker and much bigger. Came at it with all guns blazing. They cut the federal funds rate essentially to zero in in a couple of moves. They wasted no time. And then they've expanded their balance sheet, Austin, to a level that we haven't ever seen before. You know, over the last couple of years, we were shrinking, the Fed was shrinking its balance sheet in an attempt to normalize it relative to the uh, where it was before the financial crisis. Well, that is all in the past. And the balance sheet has, has ballooned as it has tried to be um, the lender of last resort, which is what a central bank does in the finest of its traditions. So Hans, should I view this as a positive thing or cautionary? And I guess the, what I'm grappling with is it seems like um, these are good things to help stabilize the near-term problems. But I have to say a growing Fed balance sheet, 
I would imagine over long periods of time is just more debt for us as a society to have to pay. And so how do you balance the near term versus the longer term as it relates to that? Well, that's, uh, that is the question. So what the Fed has done is to basically create time and cover for markets to catch a bid. Uh, on the other side, as you said, the fiscal stimulus that uh, accompanied uh, the central bank actions is, is really a cause for longer-term concerns. So the relief package that was passed about a week ago was on the order of about $2 trillion. So that's $2 trillion that has to be raised somehow. Uh, and that was on top of an economy, even before any of this happened, uh, that was supporting a trillion-dollar budget deficit as it was, which was unheard of in terms of, uh, you know, our modern economic history. You, economies, when they were running as healthy as we were, don't typically support trillion-dollar deficits, which is exactly what we were doing. So to your point, how we ultimately um, pay for all of this, number one, and number two, how we finance it, are going to be significant questions. Will this be inflationary? After the initial deflationary shock that comes from demand evaporating, and then all that money in the system, as we start to get a normalization of activity, let's say three, four, five months from now, uh, what does that do to interest rates? What does that do to inflation? What are the longer-term consequences? What's the impact on the currency? These are questions that we're going to have to ultimately deal with after the problem that's currently in front of us uh, is resolved. So these are big issues for another day, for sure. Hans, before we go to thinking about each asset class and on a, a forward-looking perspective, let me ask, because one topic that we've talked about in many quarterly calls has been the the U.S. dollar being the reserve currency and the benefits that accrue to, uh, to the United States because of that. Does this cause you to worry about or accelerate thoughts around our ability to be the reserve currency? And what have you seen in the marketplace so far? As we've talked in the past, we, we've talked about the, the threats to our status as a reserve currency, the notions of peak globalization and the like. And those would those would all um, most move hand in hand as the world starts to separate from different trading blocks. And you don't need one reserve currency if you are regionalizing economies. Uh, and with the way that the U.S. in the past has weaponized its currency, it's given um, uh, folks a lot of reasons to seek alternatives to the dollar as the unit of account and exchange within the global marketplace. That said, I, I do think in this crisis, what we saw was just the opposite, right? A run for dollars because roughly 85% of the world's trade is invoiced in dollars. So for the short term, at least, the dollar supremacy is intact. But I do think that the, the larger things that we have to worry about, the larger issues that might tumble out of this episode is this notion of peak globalization, something that we've talked about in the past. You know, an economy that requires on basic manufacture, basic goods, things like, well, medical masks, protective clothing and the like from, from a, a trading partner thousands and thousands of miles away, does that make sense? Does that make for a durable and healthy economy? And so I think this is going to be part of a larger issue where supply chains are rethought uh, from one in which, has, you know, a philosophy that's ruled for the last 30 years from just in time to perhaps just in case, 
just in case something like, you know, a pandemic or uh, a tsunami that causes a, you know, a nuclear power plant to, to melt down like happened in Japan a few years ago. It, it starts to have people rethink um, a just in case scenario where in order for their supply lines and for an economy overall to be more durable, uh, we have to think about diversified sort of uh, sources of uh, where we get our goods. Fascinating. Uh, and obviously a topic that we will continue to look at. Hans, let's uh, bring it back to today. How do you think about looking forward to different asset classes and the attractiveness uh, of each at this point, knowing that there's a lot of fluidity going on? That's right. There, there is a lot of that indeed. And I think, uh, Austin, when we, when we look at this, the landscape for us has changed pretty significantly. Whereas we were pretty optimistic about the possibility that international developed countries like Europe would start to outperform the U.S. Uh, I think that is a, a hope for another day. For now, uh, for the next, say, six to 12 months, my guess would be that U.S. large and mid-cap companies will probably be the places to have money. Um, eventually, the small cap sector will get a bid. It's hard to imagine, it's really hard to imagine the global economy recovering without uh, the U.S. leading the way, simply because we're an economy that is so large, that is so vibrant, that is so important, in, in, uh, interconnected with everyone else, that we are we are so massive that we create our own gravity. And without our presence, it's hard for the rest of the gro uh, globe to lift. So consequently, places like uh, international developed markets and emerging markets are less attractive to us. In the fixed income complex, investment grade I think it continues to be a very important place to to have money. That's where the companies are, um, you know, financial wherewithal to to weather something like this. But there are also um, opportunities because prices have fallen and there has been forced liquidation and panic selling. Places like high yield and levered loans and high yield bonds, they're pricing outcomes that even during the Great uh, Recession did not occur. And yet we're pricing um, absolutely cataclysmic, uh, unrecoverable types of things happening in those sectors, which just based on the facts don't look like they'll materialize. So there are interesting opportunities there. And these are areas that we did not have exposure to uh, until recently, especially in high yield and bank loans. Private assets, there, there should be great opportunities there as we move forward, but that will all be time dependent upon um, things that we see and, and we would uh, invest in. And, and now, over the longer term, you know, cash is less attractive as these opportunities open up. In the very short term, of course, it's very attractive because it's not subject to the uh, vicissitudes of, of, of market machinations. But that said, you know, with interest rates now at zero, and we still have an inflation rate uh, now, although it might be coming down. The purchasing power of cash is being dissipated every month. So holding it is, is not a terribly productive thing other than as a bulwark against just market volatility. Helpful, and I know it will be uh, fluid over the next couple months perspectives, but that's helpful. Let me ask, uh, Hans, we've covered a lot today, and our expectation is we will do periodic updates as the markets uh, continue to develop. But what would be the key points that you want to make certain that listeners take away from today's discussion? 
Well, I think the first thing it's important to keep in mind is this notion of trying to trade markets when they're incredibly volatile, and especially when you are engaged in a market that's disorderly. Disorderly markets typically are characterized by panicked selling or forced selling. And, and the last thing that one would ever want to do was to participate in a market that's disorderly, so, so not to be a, a seller in those markets. Um, one could be a buyer, um, but we have the, uh, the ability to take our time and, and take our spot when we do that. So not trying to trade these markets on a day-to-day -day basis or, or react. One is better when they act rather than react. So, so don't be selling, don't be engaging in disorderly markets. Also remember that the be sometimes the best thing that the best action that one can take is no action. So, in other words, to look through the market volatility right now and imagine what this might look like on the other side. If history serves as a guide, the best thing that you can do in an environment like this is just to stay put and ride it out. Probably the toughest thing that one can do, but if history is a guide, it's the best thing that one can do. And then at the end of the day, you know, there's a there's a the saying that the uh, the Brits use is this notion of keep calm and carry on, and I think that's pretty apt. It, it was a it was a common phrase, I guess, back in in World War II while uh, they were being blitzkrieged in the evenings uh, by German bombers. And and you know, in a sense, we're, we're we're in conflict of our own right now. So this notion of keeping calm, carrying on, looking out for one another. Um, trying to look through this to what it looks like on the other side. Those are the efforts that are best spent uh, these days rather than um, market ticks on, on the Dow Jones or the S&P from, from minute to minute. Hans, thank you for your summary and also the sentiment I, that I very much agree with, which is looking through the storm that we are in and, and obviously uh, caring for one another and our families. And so thank you, Hans, uh, for your time. And back to you, Todd. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found today's discussion useful as we navigate through a challenging time in the world. While there's a lot to be concerned about in this environment, it also presents unique windows for estate and financial planning actions. I encourage you to be on the lookout for our forthcoming podcasts and articles on that front. And I also encourage you to reach out to a fiduciary trust officer if we can be of assistance. If you don't have a fiduciary trust officer, please contact Rick Tyson, who's one of our officers who can assist you. He can be reached at 617-574-3482 or Tyson at fiduciary-trust.com. Thanks again for joining, and we wish health and well-being to you and your family. The opinions expressed in this podcast are as of the date issued and subject to change at any time. The materials discuss general market conditions and trends and should not be construed as investment advice. Any reference to specific securities are for illustrative purposes only and not intended to be or should not be interpreted as recommendations to purchase or sell such securities. Nothing contained herein is intended to constitute investment, legal, tax, or accounting advice and listeners should discuss any proposed arrangement or transaction with their investment, legal, or tax advisors. Copyright 2020 Fiduciary Trust Company. <laughs>